Between Sabbath and Sanctuary by Rab Chanoch Waxman Parashat Behar begins with the command of the sabbatical year. Upon entering the land, the children of Israel are to work the land for six years at a time, ceasing their labors during the seventh year. When you come to the land which I shall give you, the land shall rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field nor prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest nor gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a sabbatical year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat the produce of the Sabbath of the land. Even the most casual reading of the verses above should be enough to make us realize that the Torah is interested in emphasizing the term Shabbat and the verb stem Shin Bet Taf. The term appears seven times in the text, including Vishavta Aretz, Shabbat Lashem, Shabbat Shabbaton Yiela Aretz, Shabbat Lashem again, Shnat Shabbaton Yiela Aretz, and Shabbat Haaretz. Interestingly enough, these are the exact phrases used previously in the Torah to command the children of Israel to rest upon the seventh day. In the fourth commandment, the Israelites are told that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord, Shabbat Lashem. Likewise, chapter 35 of Shmot, the other central mention of the Sabbath day, refers to a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord, Shabbat Shabbaton Lashem. In other words, just as the seventh-day Sabbath is both Shabbat Shabbaton and Shabbat Lashem, so too the seventh-year Sabbath is Shabbat Shabbaton and Shabbat Lashem. But is this more than word games? After all, it seems more than logical to utilize the language of the seventh-day Sabbath, the Sabbath of creation, to formulate the seven-year agricultural cycle. Both involve working six units and resting on the seventh. The term Shabbat seems to be the biblical word for cease, desist, rest, and the like. Why claim that the language and structure of Vayikra possesses any special significance? In fact, I would like to argue that the language is striking, especially in comparison to the previous mention of the seven-year agricultural cycle back in Sefer Shemot. Chapter 23 of Shemot states the following, And six years you shall sow your land and shall harvest its fruits, but the seventh year you shall let it rest, and lie fallow, and the poor people of your nation may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field shall eat. So you shall do with your vineyard and with your olive grove. Six days you shall do your work, and on the seventh day you shall rest. Shocking, isn't it? In the very first mention of the seven-year agricultural cycle, the Torah refrains from utilizing any Shabbat imagery. Despite identical logical structure and literary form, Despite the immediate mention of the seventh-day Sabbath immediately afterwards, the Torah does not term the seventh year a Sabbath. In place of the term Shabbat for cease, rest, and desist, the Torah utilizes the term Shamot, the stem Shin Mem Tet. In other words, as of chapter 23 of Shmot, the seventh year is not a Shabbat. It is just Shemitah, the ceasing of work during the seventh year. If so, the text of the beginning of Behar appears in a new light. Vayikra performs a radical transformation of the image and nature of the seventh year. The language and structure that we may have been wont to dismiss seem to be a deliberate attempt to link the seventh year with the biblical concept of the Sabbath. This leads to a dual question. First of all, what's the connection? Beyond the level of language, what in fact comprises the philosophical link between the Sabbath of the seventh day and the Sabbath of the seventh year? Secondly, why here and why now? 
Why does the Torah connect the imperative to leave the land fallow in the seventh year with the concept of Shabbat here in this place, near the end of Sefer Vayikra? What is the connection between the Sabbath of the land and Sefer Vayikra? At first glance, some of the standard conceptions of Shabbat should help extricate us from our difficulty. The fourth command follows its definition of the seventh day as Sabbath to the Lord, Shabbat Lashem, with an explicit imperative and an explanation. You shall not do any work, you, your son or daughter, your manservant or your maidservant, or your cattle, or the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. In the case of the weekly Sabbath, working six days and resting on the seventh echoes the divine act of fashioning the world. As such, the Israelites' resting on the seventh day constitutes testimony to God's creation of the world. Moreover, the requirement to refrain from working on the seventh day entails refraining from providing for one's existence. In other words, food, clothing, and shelter. The Israelites in the desert were prohibited from gathering manna on the Sabbath and forced to depend upon the miracle of the non-decaying double portion of the sixth day provided by God. By this means, they developed a consciousness of their dependence upon God and the miraculous quality of even their daily existence. Likewise, not working on the seventh day, not providing for one's own sustenance, symbolizes dependence upon God. It emphasizes the miraculous quality of even our daily sustenance and builds consciousness of dependence upon God. These themes should help explain the usage of Shabbat imagery for describing the seven-year cycle. Just as resting on the seventh day echoes God's rest and testifies to creation of the world in six, so too ceasing agricultural labor in the seventh year serves as witness to God's working six and resting on the seventh. In a similar vein, the seven-year agricultural cycle picks up on a dependence theme implicit in the Sabbath. He who leaves his field fallow in the seventh year depends upon divine mercy and the divinely promised bounty of the sixth year to make it through. He depends upon God's goodness rather than the labor of his own hands. But this is insufficient. Admittedly, the thematic overlap between not working on the seventh day of the week and the cessation of agricultural labor in the seventh year does resolve the problem of the philosophical link between the weekly Sabbath and the seventh year Sabbath. Nevertheless, it does little to resolve the issue of the connection to Sefer Vayikra. We are still left wondering as to why the Torah chooses only here, near the end of Vayikra, to introduce the Shabbat imagery and explicate the philosophical overlap between the seventh day and the seventh year. In point of fact, the latter part of Vayikra seems almost obsessed with the image of Shabbat, introducing it at rather surprising junctures. Starting in chapter 23, almost every segment contains the term. For example, chapter 23, Parashat HaMoadot, the delineation of the holidays, opens with the commanding of the Sabbath of the seventh day. But since when is the Sabbath a festival day? Moreover, throughout the parasha, the term Shabbat is used in conjunction with every single holiday mentioned. In fact, it seems to be this predilection that leads to the usage of the obscure phrase on the morrow of the Sabbath, Mimacharat HaShabbat, in the dating of the waving of the first cuttings and the calculation of the date of the holiday of Shavuot. In short, the rabbinic position identifying the morrow of the Sabbath as the day after the holiday of Passover rests on good literary foundations. But this is just part of the story. The next parasha found after the holiday segment, the donation of oil for the lamp and flour for the showbread, also mentions Shabbat. The bread is switched weekly, on the Sabbath day. In fact, except for the mention of Shabbat, there appears to be no good reason for the citation of a donation or mishkan-functioning parasha at this point. Shmot would be the more logical option. Shifting from Parashat Emor to Bahar and Chukotai further highlights the emerging trend. 
As already discussed, the main body of Parashat Behar, best thought of as the sabbatical year, jubilee cycle, and associated laws, opens with the defining of the fallow seventh year as a Sabbath to the Lord, and a complex literary emphasis of the term Shabbat. Likewise, in the other half of Parashat Behar, a short two-verse segment at the end of the parasha states the following, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or set up carved images in your land, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary. I am the Lord. Of all possible precepts, the Torah once again mentions Shabbat. Finally, the obsession theory under development also explains the strange conjoining of the horrible punishments of Bechukotai with one particular sin. By logic and according to indicators in the text, the terrors of war and exile should hinge upon general abrogation of the covenant with God. The punishment section opens with an if clause. But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, if you reject my laws and spurn my rule so that you do not observe all my commandments and break my covenant, the punishments result from general abrogation of the covenant. Yet later on, after the starvation, plagues, and exile, the Torah teaches that all the punishment has come for a particular purpose. Then shall the land make up for its Sabbath years throughout the time that it is desolate, and you are in the land of your enemies. Then shall the land rest and make up for its Sabbath years. Throughout the time that it is desolate, it shall observe the rest that it did not observe in your Sabbath years while you dwelt upon it. The exile comes in virtue of having violated the sabbatical year. It allows the land to make up the lost Sabbath years. Once again, and rather unexpectedly, the Torah chooses to utilize and emphasize the term and concept of Shabbat. This must be more than just style, and this must be more than just a literary frenzy. Let us return to the very first mention of the term Shabbat in the latter part of Aikra. As mentioned above, Shabbat first crops up as the first Moed, the first festival. Although this seems rather mysterious, our previous discussion of Parashat Amor should help clear things up. In analyzing Parashat HaMoadot, the detailing of the holidays, and its connection to the preceding portions of Sefer Vayikra, I argue that Moed should not be understood so much as festival, but rather literally as a holiday, in other words, a holy day. The Moadim are sanctified times. As examples of holiness, they fit right into the theme of Sefer Vayikra. The weekly Sabbath constitutes the arch-paradigm of time-based sanctity. The Torah introduces the Sabbath of the seventh day with the following text, Thus the heaven and earth were finished, and all their array. On the seventh day God finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy. While the Torah of course mentions the cessation of work on the seventh day, and alludes to the contrast between the previous six days and the seventh, the primary thrust of the text is upon blessing and sanctity. God's blessing and sanctifying of the seventh day constitutes the conceptual crescendo of the origins of the Sabbath. If so, we need no longer ask why the Sabbath appears as the first holiday. If the Torah wishes to discuss the sanctity of time, the meeting with God in time, then the Sabbath is the obvious place to begin. Likewise, we need no longer wonder as to why the Torah utilizes the term Shabbat as a recurring motif throughout Parashat HaMoadot, and as a means of referring to the various holidays. In a parasha that is really about the sanctity of time, the term Shabbat is a way not just to say a day on which work is forbidden, but also to allude to the essence of the parasha. The symbol of Shabbat constitutes the natural choice. All of this can be phrased far more radically. It is not just that Sefer Vayikra wishes to discuss the sanctity of time, and hence introduces Parashat HaMoadot and its Sabbath preface. Rather, Sefer Vayikra initiates a fundamental shift in its concern. 
until the beginning of chapter 23 and the introduction of the holidays, Vaikra has been about matters related to the holiness of place, meeting God in space, and hence dealt with the sanctuary, sacrifices, and priests. But from here on, Vaikra is about the holiness of time and its literary symbol, the Shabbat. The latter part of Vaikra deploys the term Shabbat not just out of literary motivations, but as signaling a shift in focus, a new general theme and a concentration on a different type of holiness than previously elaborated. To close the circle, by now we should no longer need to wonder about the two problems we began with. Both the conceptual connection between the seven-year agricultural cycle and the weekly Sabbath, and the link between Sefbaikra and the sabbatical year should fall into place. In utilizing the phrases, the Sabbath of the land, a Sabbath to the Lord, and Shabbat Shabbaton, the beginning of Parashat Behar telegraphs that we have stumbled upon another example of the sanctity of time. Like the weekly Sabbath and the holidays, the seventh year constitutes a case of holiness in time. In the worldview of Sefer Vayikra, it is another opportunity, just like sanctuary and Shabbat, for meeting with God. Hence the Torah here in Sefer Vayikra links the laws of the seventh year with the symbol of Shabbat and defines the sabbatical year. Yet this is not exactly right. Earlier, I listed six seemingly problematic contexts in which the Torah utilized the term Shabbat in the course of the latter part of Aikra. While the theory propounded until this point, the shift to the sanctity of time and hence the symbol of Shabbat easily handles the first five contexts, the last one, the curses of Bechukotai, is not so simple. To put this a little bit differently, it still seems unclear why exile hinges upon violation of the sabbatical year. But this is only part of the problem. A quick review of the fifth context mentioned above, the tail end of Behar, raises a more fundamental problem. The text preceding the covenantal promises and punishments of Bechukotai reads, You shall not make idols for yourselves, or set up carved images in your land, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and venerate my sanctuary, I am the Lord. Apparently, the sanctity of place, the holiness of fixed space, has not completely faded out of the storyline of Sefer Vayikra. Here, as a preface to the if-then and if-not-then covenant of Bechukotai, the Torah presents the obvious prohibition of idol worship, the now obvious precept of Shabbat, and the now slightly surprising and vague requirement to venerate the sanctuary. But what is the sanctity of space doing here in the part of Vayikra that has already shifted to the sanctity of time? The answer lies in realizing that the shift in Sefer Vayikra from the sanctity of place to the sanctity of time comprises not so much a revolutionary movement, but a dialectical motion culminating in synthesis of the two types of holiness. To put this in plainer and more concrete terminology, the Torah recognizes two distinct types of holiness. After focusing for most of Sefer Vayikra on the first type, namely the sanctity of space and sanctuary, the Torah then introduces the second, the holiness of time, beginning in chapter 23. While the former, the sanctity of place, is symbolized by the term sanctuary, the latter, the sanctity of time, is expressed in the term Shabbat. As a preface to the covenant that closes the Book of Holiness, the Torah links the two ways of finding holiness and meeting God. It conjoins Shabbat and Mikdash, and places them after the prohibition of idol worship, in other words, the requirement of loyalty to God. In this succinct summary, the Torah reminds the Israelites what it is all about. To close, let us return to the last unresolved detail, the connection of the punishments of Bechugotai with the violation of the sabbatical year. In reality, the synthesis of holiness of time and holiness of place happens not so much in the fifth context, the preface to the covenant, but back in the fourth, the introduction of the sabbatical year. Let us take one last look at the text.
When you come to the land which I shall give you, the land shall rest, Vishavta Haaretz, a Sabbath to the Lord. Six years you may sow your field, and six years you may prune your vineyard and gather in the yield. But in the seventh year the land shall have a Sabbath of complete rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap the aftergrowth of your harvest or gather the grapes of your untrimmed vines. It shall be a sabbatical year of complete rest for the land. But you may eat the produce of the Sabbath of the land. The segment begins with the phrase, When you come to the land and mentions the term land six times. As pointed out earlier, it is the land that rests. In sum, the sabbatical year is not just about time, but also about place. It already fuses the holiness of place and the holiness of time together. It is only in the holy land that the seventh year is holy. Put differently, the sabbatical year contains within it both Mikdash and Shabbat. It in fact constitutes the expansion of each type of holiness to the largest possible units of each dimension. The holiness of time expands from the standard unit of one day, a single day out of a cycle of seven, to fill an entire year. Likewise, likewise, the holiness of the place expands beyond its normal and assumed parameters. It also exists beyond the walls of the sanctuary. It in fact fills the entire land of Israel. The entire land is a holy place. This puts us in position to resolve the textual and symbolic connection between violation of the sabbatical year and exile. Like the covenant preface of Shabbat and Mikdash, the sabbatical year is also about the holiness of time and the holiness of place. Like the covenant preface, it is about the opportunity for encountering sanctity and meeting with God. Like the preface, it succinctly contains the religious ideal of Sefer Vayikra and the goal of entry into the land of Israel. But if the children of Israel violate the sabbatical year, if they fail to understand and exploit the sanctity of time and place, if they fail to encounter God, what is the point? Hence the punishments and exile of Parashat Chukotai. The children of Israel have understood neither the sanctity of time nor the sanctity of place, and have violated the meanings of both Mikdash and Shabbat. Exile is the result.